Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them, speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Luke chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown also. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. This is a paradoxical message, and as such, really the gospel is a paradoxical message, as such you cannot understand this message without revelation from God, revelation from the Holy Spirit concerning its message, and the great aspect of Epiphany is the unveiling of Jesus Christ to the people of Israel. Uh, last week we spent time at the earlier part of this same passage in Luke 4, and I think it's wonderful that the way that the readings are split up in the calendar, the schedule of readings is set up so that we see the great glory of Jesus Christ's intention, which we searched out in depth last week, that he announced that he was that one that Isaiah foretold who would come and heal the people of God, the one who would release those who are in prisons. And those prisons are not just physical prisons, but prisons of sin, prisons of the spirit prisons of the soul of man. And Christ is not able only to open up the eyes of a person born blind. He is able to open up those eyes of those who cannot see God. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We sing a song here occasionally, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's one of my favorite hymns. It's got a great melody, but probably the greatest aspect, at least to me, of that song is the public proclamation, unashamedly, though the eyes of sinful men thy glory may not see. We cannot see God unless he opens our eyes. And we see that explicitly in this passage. Everyone loves to see Jesus proclaiming, I'm going to be your healer. I'm going to be your deliverer. But very few people, in fact, the sinful man cannot like when Jesus Christ also says, I'm going to name your sin. And that's what we see. We see Israel rejecting Jesus Christ because he is a great prophet. And so the rejection of Jesus Christ is actually just as significant of an aspect of the season of Epiphany as was the coming of the Magi, as was the baptism by John in the Jordan, as was his miracles at the wedding of Cana, and then last week as we looked in detail, his beginning of his preaching ministry, identifying himself as the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is anointed by God to be the king of Israel and the healer of the nation. And so Jesus is coming at this point to indict the sin of the people, and then he calls together two witnesses, as we're going to see, again, that biblical pattern of two witnesses, two or three witnesses establishing a thing. Jesus testifies and then calls Elisha and Elijah to remembrance. And so before we get to this, however, I think it's important that we see the covenantal aspect of Jesus Christ as the greatest prophet. And so today's message is going to have five uh, elements to the structure. First, we're going to discuss the office of a prophet as understood in the covenantal context today. Most of you probably have been at least subtly, if not directly infected or affected by the idea of a prophet as someone today who foretells the end of the world. In modern uh, memory, we might remember Harold uh, Camping, and Harold Camping was the most recent guy, if you remember just a few years ago, to foretell the destruction of the earth in the future. And he named a particular year, based it on the scriptures, and then it didn't happen, and the world continued to mock the body of Christ. And so we have a deep need for the restoration of the office and role of a prophet. And even in a church such as we are, Charismatics, uh, little little C cares. So we're in a weird place because we can't be in the reform camp. They don't let, you know like us because we're continuationist, and we're not continuationist enough to be in the Pentecostal circles. We're just in a weird spot. So uh, if you put us on the theological map, we're in many camps at once. And and being a, a church that is open to the continuation of the gifts, we have a deep need to understand the office of prophet and because that will inform how we approach prophecy, a calling to remembrance rather than a foretelling. We're not trying to, we're not hucksters at, at uh, carnivals trying to guess your weight and what's going to happen to you next week. We're not foretelling your future. We're reminding you of the covenant of God that he made to his people. And we're going to look at the office of a prophet because it's so important. Without understanding what a prophet does, we will miss Jesus Christ as the greatest prophet. We're going to look at the unrepentant deafness in Israel as concerns the time of Moses and her desire not to hear God directly, but rather to have a mediator. She does not want a mediator for a good reason. She wants a mediator to be far away from God. Although we do need a true mediator, and that one mediator is Jesus Christ, 
She didn't want the mediator for the right reasons. We're going to look at Christ as both the prophet of God, the one who calls Israel to, re- to remembrance, and as Hebrews says, the very word which God is speaking, the very word which God is declaring over Israel. Jesus is not just one speaking, but his very life is a testimony against the people of God. He concerns their sin, and he is the word which the Father speaks concerning their sin. We're going to look at the sovereign grace of the gospel, and when I mean sovereign grace, I mean that it is by God's own choosing who he will dispense his grace upon, and how that actually is our greatest liberator. Rather than a doctrine which damns all men to hell, uh, we have a wonderful doctrine in which God saves some. We're going to explore a common objection to the gospel, one that you probably have faced at a subtle level in your heart, or you've heard openly, whether you've been sharing your, go- uh, sharing your faith with someone else, or whether you're just exploring the faith, a, a temptation of doctrine, that is a thing which we wish to believe because we are not willing to, to have the truth of God come to us. Here we see something about the nature of the gospel in Jesus' testimony concerning what's happened in the past with Israel that is a vital uh, aspect of the gospel that we must understand. Uh, By must, I don't mean that you have to be able to fully articulate it. I mean that it is a great source of well, a wellspring of joy and life, which will uh, provide you with assurance throughout your walk. If it is up to me in order to approach God, I am destroyed. But rather, Jesus Christ says, God shows mercy on whom he will. And he does it in the context of covenant. So we're going to look at all of that today. If you have your Bibles, you should probably turn to Deuteronomy 18 as we're going to spend a few minutes there, and then also Luke 4. Um, God is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This creator is also identified as the redeemer. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, he does not bring her out of Egypt and not declare himself to her, but rather shows himself to be the creator. When he gives the Ten Commandments, he identifies him as the God which has redeemed them, and then later the God which has made the world. It's the principle for why they are to have no other gods, and it's also the principle for why they are to rest on the seventh day, because he made the earth in six days. And so God is the creator, redeemer, who has led Israel out of Egypt, and as soon as he delivers them through uh, through the Exodus, Yahweh more warns Moses that they are going to turn away quickly. And we don't have to get very long in the story of the Exodus until we see this. As soon as Yahweh is giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, as soon as he begins to give it, they begin to turn away from him. Yahweh is giving the law to Moses. He's explaining how the tabernacle shall be built. He is demonstrating how the, the priests are to come before him and how they are to make atonement for the people of God. And as soon as the very law is coming from God to the people, he says to Moses, take heed, there is a war in the camp. He says they're breaking out against him. A war of worship breaks out in the camp. If you take the time to go through Exodus 32, Uh, Joshua, who is with Moses, says, I hear a sound of war in the camp. And then Moses prophetically declares it to be not a sound of war, but rather a sound of singing. 
There is a battle of worship going on in the midst of the Israelites camp at the very moment when Yahweh is declaring himself to be their God and giving him giving them his gracious law. They are already committing idolatry at the very moment they are told not to. Throughout Israel's history, this continues. This pattern only gets worse. They they stray from Yahweh and they serve other gods, gods that they did not know, gods that are no gods at all, and they serve idols. They bow down to carved images and painted images, those things which should not be bowed down before. The only one to bow down before is Yahweh alone, and these people, these Israelite people, the people of God, turn away from God and worship idols. And so God instituted a prophet at various times when these things were going on to rebuke the people of God and to remind them of the covenant faithfulness of the one who delivered them out of their bondage. He does not remind them of a God they have not known. He, He reminds them of a God that they know and the God that delivered them. This is important to understand as you are beginning to share the gospel with your friends, with your family, you're not simply just calling them to remember a God that they don't know, but rather a God that they know inwardly in their conscience and externally from them in the created order, as Romans 1 teaches us. Prophets always call to a remembrance of God. And here, as we mentioned earlier at the introduction, I want to highlight prophets do not merely tell things which are to come to pass. That is not the main desire for the office of a prophet, the way that Yahweh establishes them in his scriptures. He does not uh, instruct them merely to foretell the future, although that sometimes is included and sometimes a very necessary aspect. Most often, a, a prophet has a voice. John the Baptist says, I am one who is to be a voice. He is a voice which calls to remembrance those things which Yahweh has done and a remembrance to those sins which Israel has committed and sought to push out of her mind and suppress and and repress. And so a prophet is not just someone who tells the future, he tells the past. This is a great aspect of the role of a prophet. He pronounces judgment for unfaithfulness and calls the people to repentance. And rather than skirt around the issue, calling it unfaithfulness or transgressions, prophets name them those things which are sinful as sin. We are very tempted today to cozy up the language of, uh, of, of the wrath of God against sin as changing it into these things that are just mistakes or flaws in character as if some sort of moral reform of the individual could repair and bring one closer to God. We are tempted so often to hide the deep evil that our sin manifests in our heart. In Romans 7, Paul says that when the law was away, I was alive, but when the law came, I died. Why Why does he say that? Because the law calls to mind those things which are sin, and it shows him as utterly unable to stand before God on his own merits, on his own approach. And so prophets are those who call to mind what sin is and identify sinful things as sin. Our cultural witness today as Christians is important. We must not be deceived into calling those things which are sinful as normal, accepted, approachable, reasonable things. It, It is a battle of words, and it is also a battle of spiritual powers. We need to be on guard when we're discussing things 
calling them to be sinful or calling them to be righteous. Prophets name sinful things as sin, and they don't beat around the bush. So as Moses is up on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai in, in Exodus, Mount Horeb in Deuteronomy and other places, the people wish for Moses to go up to the mountain and bring down the word from God. Uh, we've discussed this at length in other times, especially at uh, the day of Pentecost. We often remember the time in which Moses goes up to the mountain. But the, the people are surrounding the mountain. They're down at the base of the mountain. God tells them not to come up. He is speaking to Moses, and the people kind of hear Yahweh at a distance. And they say to Moses, we don't want to hear Yahweh anymore. And Moses reminds them of this, and it's not a good thing, although Yahweh says it is the thing which they say is right, he doesn't say it's good. He does say that they are right in their estimation of their condition, that they cannot stand to hear God, but he doesn't want that for them. That's not what he desires to come to pass. The chief sin of Israel at Mount Sinai before Moses goes up is not the making of a calf. That comes later. The chief sin is that they don't want to hear God. The chief sin is that they wish to remain at a distance from God. They did not recognize his holy judgments on sin and rather understood a wrong picture of who God was. They should have, if they were filled with the fear of the Lord, they should have streamed to God to approach him closer because the safest place is near God. The fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that means approaching wisdom. And wisdom in Proverbs 8 is dwelling with the Father. Wisdom was possessed at the beginning. And so wisdom is fearing the Lord, approaching the Lord in nearness, and the people wish to have God at a distance. They desire a mediator, not because of God's pattern, but rather their inability to approach God in holiness. Moses prophesies that God will raise up another prophet as he is departing. Moses is passing on the baton to Joshua, but before he hands over the, the reins to Joshua, he foretells as a prophet that which will come about in the redemption of God. In Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, if you've got your Bibles with you, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among, from among their brothers. The book of Hebrews identifies the necessity that Jesus Christ, if he is to be our replacement, would be like us, that it would be, satisfy God's justice to have a representative in the like nature as we are. Hebrews says that, we are, that Jesus Christ was made to learn obedience through the things that he suffers and that he is able to sympathize with those who he calls. Moses continues in uh, speaking from the Lord, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This prophet is not one who speaks on his own accord. This is a great indication that if you're listening to a modern-day self-proclaimed prophet, that this person is not a prophet at all, should they turn to hyping up their ministry or emphasizing some anti-Christian doctrine, what have you. Jesus is prefigured here by Moses as the one who speaks for God, the things from God, calling the people to remember. Verse 19, it says, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We're about to see this quoted in Acts 3 in just a minute, but I just want you to hear at the end of verse 19, it says that Yahweh will require it of him. And this is a very important point concerning Yahweh's judgments over individuals. There is, at times in the scripture, a view of judgments which come on cities and nations for not repenting. But it's clear 
here that God is judging individuals for how they respond to the words of this prophet who was to speak. And this is uh, a great aspect of what Jesus Christ is doing as a prophet. After the healing of the beggar, Peter and John uh, are there at Solomon's portico right outside the temple, and they testify, the, the men of Israel come and look at them as if they're you know, these amazing people, Peter and John say, don't look at us as if we are something, but rather we do this in the name of Jesus. They then to pro- begin to proclaim exactly who Jesus was. And it's important that we see in the book of Acts, it's always in the covenantal context. We don't just share the gospel without a context, hijacking some you know, narrative that is unrelated to where people come from, how they were created by God to be his image bearers. Acts 3, 22 through 24, Moses said, this is Peter quoting Moses, and I want you to uh, take a look at what happens uh, in, in his paraphrase. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So far, so good, quote for quote. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He then interpolates, Peter then exegetes or, or summarizes the rest of the prophets, beginning with Samuel. Samuel's recognized as really the beginning of the prophets who live in the land of Israel, not the, the prophets who came before the nation, but rather in, in establishing the nation and bringing about the kings. The time after the judges, Samuel is kind of seen as the great tributary of the prophets. He says, Samuel and those who came after him spoke in the same way, and they proclaimed the days of Christ. So Christ is this one who is the culmination of all the prophecies which were given of him, and he carries that exact same mantle. Now, I I think it's helpful to understand that this is a paraphrase. Let's just go back real quick. 19, it says, Yahweh, I myself will require it of him. And then here, Peter is paraphrasing It shall be that every soul who does not listen to the people shall be destroyed from the people. And this is a paraphrase. Peter's not quoting from the Greek copy of the law, which existed at the time, still exists today, but was in common use back then. And I just want to give you an encouragement for those of you who are seeking to memorize scripture and you are not remembering it quite well. We have biblical warrant for it. Um, He doesn't give a reference Uh, Those didn't exist. And he didn't quote it explicitly. He quoted it in a paraphrase so as to explain the sense, so as to tell exactly what the Jews understood this to mean, that Yahweh's requiring something of someone is the same as judging them as unwilling or unworthy to remain in the land of the living. That Yahweh's requiring of the obedience of listening to this great prophet who is to come He will personally require it of each person. That's you. That's me. We are guilty or acquitted based on our reception of this great prophet. God will take vengeance on the one who does not listen to him. This is what the Jews understood Yahweh to be saying when Yahweh said, I myself will require it of them, those who do not listen to this prophet. And so here, Jesus Christ comes in this great tradition of calling the people back to faithfulness, calling them to love the God who has loved them, who has delivered them, and to serve him in fear and awe and reverence in holiness, drawing near to him rather than seeking to hold him at a distance, seeking to worship their own way, 
their own gods. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he declares himself as the Christ. This is what we looked at last week when Jesus reads from the prophet of Isaiah. He says, I have been anointed. That is the word for the Messiah or the Christ. The Christ is the one who is anointed by God to do two functions, to sit on the throne of David, which God promised to David that you would never lack a man to sit on the throne, and also to be the one who redeems the people of Israel, redeems their sins, takes them away, and allows them to come near before God. He is this twofold Messiah, this one who is the king, who will reign righteously. He won't be like the other kings who turn away to become like the other nations, and he won't be merely someone who pushes or kicks the can down the road. He will terminate the sins of Israel in his work explicitly, not in some obscure way, not in a shadow or a pointer to someone in the future. He will be God's final word concerning what is necessary to remove sin. Jesus Christ, in the poetic sense of today's there's a, a notion, uh, there's a story called the, the Last Death Eater. And there's this story about a missionary who's going to a tribe. Anyway, they have a ritual in that tribe which, which kind of belies this point that, that all nations really know, all peoples really know that something has to be done about sin. It has to be removed some way. We do this whether we realize it or not in modern culture. And although we don't have enough time for it, I, I think that many aspects of our culture because we do not receive the grace of God, the final termination of sin, we constantly live in patterns of scapegoating and exile. And, you know, this is what's seen in, in, at the political realm whenever we fire a department head for a law that is against God's will in the first place. You know, whenever someone uh, eats it, at, if you will. This is the pattern of those who need to scapegoat away something. We see that happen with Jesus here. Because they are unwilling to receive the redemption which he's offering, the healing which he's saying, I would give you, they then turn around and say, physician, heal thyself. I think there's a twofold aspect to that as we're going to look at in a, in a minute. But it's, it's very perplexing to me how they are unwilling to be healed and then they turn around and push him out of their town. I think it's, it's amazing, and it's indictment not against just the people of Israel, but of all people. We'll look at that in the beginning. So he declares himself to be the Christ, and as the Christ, he is not merely a priest, and he's not merely a king. If you're a student of the Old Covenant Scriptures, you know that there are three large offices, three main offices, which must be fulfilled by the Messiah. He must be a priest and intercede for the sins of the people and atone for their sin. We're happy with Jesus being that. He must be a king. He must sit on the throne of David, rule the nations, rule the peoples appropriately. We're, we're totally okay with that. But we're often not okay with Jesus being a prophet. Why? Because a prophet names sin as sin. He comes close to you and identifies that thing which is in your heart as sin. And he does that publicly against the people as we're about to see. Christ comes declaring his desire to heal. And as we alluded to in the Sunday school hour, over and over again, Jesus is testifying to the people of Israel, desiring to draw them together. They're a scattered people. They're in a spiritual exile. And he says, if you would but turn, I would draw you back and I would bring you near to God. I would take you to God. I would take you before him because you cannot go before him on your own. Jesus longs to be the remedy for the people and they reject him and push him out of their town. As soon as he is being revealed to Israel, they demonstrate their inability to hear him. 
Again, this, this has to be seen in the context of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This isn't a later point which develops as they begin to get a distaste for what Jesus is doing in the nation. This happens right at the beginning of his ministry. Luke records it in this position to show that it is so foundational to who Jesus is as a prophet that it cannot be missed. It cannot be skipped. We're okay with Jesus saying that he was the one who was anointed to proclaim forgiveness, but we're not okay with the people responding in wrath. That really unnerves us. And I like the idea that it's split up into two different weeks so that we can highlight it here today. Luke 4, verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. Jesus himself would later on tell his disciples, woe are you when all men speak well of you. This is a major indictment against the people of God. All of them thought he was great. This is uh, a great warning to those of you who wish to proclaim the gospel in any situation, whether it be in front of a person or in front of many people at once. If everybody is cool with the message, you have not done your job. Jesus here is spoken well of, and as soon as he's spoken well of, they then begin to show their contempt for him. He says, Uh, He says he's the one who's anointed to heal, and they marvel at his gracious words. Uh, he He says at the beginning of his interpretation of the scripture that this is fulfilled in your hearing. And I just want to give some context because Luke is summarizing the event. Jesus, after quoting from the scriptures, it was common tradition in that day as it is to to today, the church has received this tradition well, that after the reading of the scripture, then the one who read would give a short summary about that. And lest you say in your heart that 45 minutes is not a short summary, I would just remind you that there have been great times in the church's history of two and three hour sermons. And so, yeah, I would encourage you to get a copy of Charles Spurgeon's sermons and try to read them out loud. It takes hours. Some of them take hours. Some of them are short, and most of them are written without the commentary that he interleaves in between his points as he reads his manuscript. Sidebar. Um, So, getting back to the original intent here, Jesus is saying, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, and then Luke Luke doesn't record the sermon. Jesus then continues to speak, and it says that they're marveling at the gracious words which are coming from his lips. He's giving them a message of grace, that I will come, I will be this one that Isaiah said beforehand beforehand would come. I will be this one to heal and to open the the blind eyes, to open the deaf ears. I will proclaim liberty, liberty. I will give relief and comfort to those who are poor, not just poor in money, but poor in spirit, a great depth, a poverty of soul. Jesus shows that he will be the one to redeem them, and they're marveled at his graciousness. And then immediately, verse 22 says, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? You see, the people of Nazareth, the hometown in which Jesus grew up, this is where Jesus was born and raised, well, not born, but raised, and this is where he lived. Jesus is called the Nazarene, uh, even to this day. He's identified with this town of Nazareth, and they begin to show their contempt for him, understanding him to be a normal person who we saw growing up. Is this not Joseph's son? And 
it may not read or sound like that is such a contemptuous treatment of Jesus Christ, but look at how Jesus responds. He responds with a rebuke. And he said to them, doubtless, verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He prophesies what he's going to do at Capernaum. And he, he then says that you're going to declare this to me and we see that at the cross. God spoke in might and terror at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and they didn't wish to hear. They said, if God speaks to us any longer, we would perish, we would die. Moses, you go and deal with God for us. Come down, bring the word to us, and bring it so that we can withstand it. And Christ comes and speaks words of graciousness. Yahweh spoke once at Mount Sinai with words of terror, with words of fear. He showed up in a fire, in a cloud, in an earthquake. Terrifying sight. Jesus comes and speaks words that are gracious. What we're seeing here is it doesn't matter the message. The people are not concerned with the delivery mechanism. They're concerned with the one speaking and what he's saying about their sin. They hate Jesus' testimony of what God has chosen to do and it says they're filled with wrath. Probably more of a greater hatred today is, uh, is against the wrath of God and the doctrine of hell. Probably the only thing surpassing that doctrine in despising in modern use or modern emphasis is the idea that men are actually full of wrath. And we see that happen in Nazareth right here in this passage. Their inability to hear is not the means or the message, but the one speaking. Jesus Christ, the great physician, declares his desire to heal. He declares his desire to redeem and gather and restore. He's offering them grace, and then they respond in contempt. They respond in complacency. They don't want him around. And so he prophesies, foretells the future, and after doing this, he brings two witnesses against them, and uh, I just want to re-emphasize this idea. We read in the law that every fact shall be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Here Jesus is testifying against their hardness of heart, and he calls to mind two testimonies of what God has done in the past. Verse 25, but I tell you in truth, uh, but, but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. There are many widows, and God chose to send Elijah to a widow out in Sidon. Tyre and Sidon in the Old Covenant is a place that is slightly north and west of Israel. It's a nation that does not serve Yahweh. And Elijah is sent by God to one widow to restore her in the midst of a famine which covered the land. Elijah was sent to none of them. And here we have to ask ourselves the question, who is doing the sending? We're going to answer that in just a second. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. If you aren't familiar with those stories, uh, Naaman was a man. He was a commander of an army who uh, had been involved in oppressing the people of God at one point or another. And he was then uh, leprous. He had a skin disease, some sort of problem on him. And he was told by God to go through a series of events, a series of messages, which included a woman in Israel, the king of the nation that he served, and then finally 
sending an envoy to the king of Israel, and then, you know, Elisha kind of steps in. At, at, at any rate, Naaman is told to go and to dip himself in the Jordan seven times. Uh, the fullness of, of God's washing is prefigured here in Naaman's baptism, if you will, although it's not called a baptism. We see it as a washing of Naaman, and he's given this opportunity to be cleansed. But he wasn't an Israelite. He was someone who the Israelites hated and despised and considered unworthy to receive the grace of God. The people are absolutely enraged by Christ's implication that God is willing to show favor and grace to pagans. I would, uh, I would encourage you when you hear the word Gentiles in scriptures, that word is so soft to us because we don't have much of the context of what the Israelites thought about Gentiles. Whenever you see Gentiles, just switch it to pagans. And uh, if you're really bold, you can switch it to whichever people group you dislike the most. For some of you, it's probably Democrats. Some of you, it's liberals. Some of you, it's, you know, your teachers. That, some of, that, that Christ would have mercy on, on prostitutes and on tax collectors. I actually probably, if, if I was to insert the name of the people group I despise the most, I would probably use tax collectors. People who work for the IRS can receive the grace of God. Now, I don't believe that they stay working at the IRS, but that's a little color commentary. What we, it, it's, it's, not at all, uh, it's not at all the case that you can say one people group is more righteous than the other. The scripture traps everyone under the ceiling of sin. And Jesus testifies against them, saying that there were many people who could have received the grace of God here in Israel, and God chose to go to these nations. We looked at this in the Sunday school hour. Why does he do that? Because God is drawing all the peoples. We see this in Revelation 4 and 5. It it ends with a culmination of the saints in heaven, the saints who are being gathered as those who come from every tribe and tongue and nation. And those who receive the grace of God, God does not give it to them based on who they are. He does not respect persons. He doesn't respect heritages and lineages and papers and doctoral programs. He doesn't respect political views. He bestows grace upon those who he will, and they hate it. They hate it. They're filled with wrath, and they try to murder him. God is the one who sent Elijah to the Sidonian woman. Who, who sent Elijah? God sent him. God chose to send him. Likewise, God chose to send Naaman. Their wrath boils over into a murderous, raging mob. Think about anything that you've heard about in the past where you've seen a mob, maybe on television, or even seen one in person. I've never had the uh, privilege of seeing one. But consider what's going on in here. A room probably larger than this one, filled with people who are there on the day that they all gather to appear before God, They're a community of those who are seeking near one who says, thou shalt not kill. And they are filled with wrath, such to the point that they attempt to murder God in the flesh. Luke 4, 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Teachers, lay people, servants, I don't know if the kids were there, but it says all all were filled with wrath. It didn't say that some of the more zealous ones or some of the ones who loved the law more. It says that they were all filled with wrath. Why? Because of what Christ was telling them about the nature of the grace of God. 
They're filled with wrath. They attempt to murder him. I, I think that this is, in my understanding of Luke 4.29, this is kind of an aspect of what makes Nazareth such an evil city. I don't know if I'm reading into the text here, but I think it's right. It says, verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. This is a way of life for the Nazarenes. This is what they're all about. The thing on which their town is built is the expelling of anyone who would declare, identify something as sinful. And they hate him for it. The only one who can bring reconciliation in Israel is cast out. The one who is going to redeem them and bring them back from exile is himself scapegoated and exiled and pushed out of their community. The one who would heal them is told to heal himself. Christ prophesying, of course, to that time when he's on the cross. The Nazarites essentially are cleansing their town of the pure one, the very one who would be able to cleanse them. The one who declared himself as the one to gather and bring up the brokenhearted and to mend them and to open up the eyes of the blind. The very one who is their solution, they hate and remove. Why is this terrible account of the Jews' rejection to good news to us? I want to just say something parenthetically here uh, that if you are unfamiliar with our understanding of the church in Israel, perhaps you have heard some of these statements as a polemic or a diatribe against the people of Israel. I want to make plain here, when I identify the sin of the people of Israel, I am not saying it's their sin and not ours. As Christians, we believe that there is a covenantal continuity between the Old and New Testaments by which God brings out a remnant from the midst of the people of Israel. And we see this very clearly in Acts. It says, even many people in Israel were beginning to believe even some of the Pharisees. If you go and read the book of Acts, it shows that over and over again, people in Jerusalem, the city that killed the Christ, became Christians. So when I identify this as the sin of Israel, I'm not giving you license, and I'm not operating in this way, of saying that that was their sin, but we're here as Christians and we got it right. Now, that says nothing to that has nothing to do with what I think about the current nation state of Israel. That's another discussion for a later day. It has nothing to do with the continuity between the Old and New Testaments, the faithful church which God has formed on his own volition, on his own will. He identifies a sin in them. We see it, and it's our sin. Do not say to yourself that if I was in that synagogue that day, I would have gotten it right. Because Jesus is identifying it as their sin, their inability to receive him. As at first we see that the rejection of the Christ by the Jews is the same rejection that we ourselves have engaged in against a holy God by our sins and by the sins that we encourage others to do and participate with others. We cannot justify ourselves saying we would have gotten it right, they got it wrong. So that's the first point. The second point is that as the greatest prophet, Christ names sin for what it is. He says that they will quote this proverb to him, physician, heal thy, thyself. He, he prophesies at a point where they will ridicule him as he's on the cross, bleeding and dying for the sins of the nation, the sins of his people. Christ does not leave us in the deceit of our hypocrisy. 
Many people are willing to listen to teachers who soothe them with nice words and nice ideas, encouraging them that they can be better people and that they can, uh, you know, remedy their efforts. And if they only try hard and commit this time, then they will really mature in life and they can be pleasing before God. Christ does not buy into that method at all. It's antithetical to the doctrine of Christianity that is all men are trapped under sin and unable to stand before God at all. He lovingly confronts the coldness of heart in Israel as coldness of heart towards God and as the sin which it is. It is not okay to be merely at a distance from God as those who were at Mount Sinai wished to be, having Moses go up to meet God and then bringing it down for us. We are all called to worship and serve the Lord in fear and reverence. And those who are deceived, this is why it's so great for for Jesus to do this, those who are deceived have no ability to know they are deceived. Think about this for a second. How would you know if you are deceived? How would you know if you're deceived? Well, you could say, well, I could use my powers of observation and look at those around me to see if I was deceived, and I could confirm with others, and I could ask them, well, how would you know that your understanding of what they're saying is correct? There is no escape from deception that those who are deceived can engage in to get themselves out of it. It's like a bear trap which is closed on the leg. It, it digs in and in, and as you writhe against it in agony and pain, trying to set yourself free, the, the trap gets worse and worse, digging deeper and infecting and cutting more. The deception which blinds sinners is unable to be perceived by them. They are blind. They do not know that they are deceived. This is why this is a grace, because we who do not have the ability to see God need someone to come and tell us that we are deceived, that we are walking in sin, and have need for a savior. I saw last night on Facebook, just as a confession, I was on Facebook. I saw a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I love Charles Spurgeon, as you probably know. He said, a man will never robe himself in the righteousness of Christ until the last fig leaf is removed from his covering. It is so true, brothers and sisters, fig leaves, those things which we think about ourselves and justify ourselves with, are our attempts to deal with the guilt of our standing before Yahweh as we continue to walk in our sin. And unless those are removed as being fig leaves, those things which Adam and Eve used to cover themselves in their nakedness, we cannot be robed with the righteousness of Christ, the cleansing which he offers to give us. It is not possible. And so Christ identifies the sins of the people and he does it in a gracious way. The only way that someone can come out of deception is if someone who is not deceived comes and opens their eyes. This is what the gospel is. Christ shines the light upon my heart and reveals it to be full of darkness and death. There is no good in me. And lest you think that that is an inappropriate estimation of a Christian, someone who is now justified but still a sinner, then you are warring against the biblical teaching. The gospel is not an encouragement to those who are trying hard before God. The gospel is not a word of encouragement which comes to the, those who are trying to appear before God and kind of encourages them along the way saying, if you try harder, you might get there. This is why Jesus Christ's rejection by the people 
is a great and good thing to celebrate because it identifies the depth of the problem. The gospel is fundamentally a message to those who are rebellious, and that is all men and women. Lest you misunderstand, when I say all men are sinners, I mean all women are sinners as well. It's, now we kind of war against that in our modern uh, language preferences. We have gender-neutral Bibles and other heretical things. Um, It's actually devolved into such a deep problem that in the liberal Protestant churches, the apostate branches, they now openly discuss the father as the mother, as in the father of God being the mother of God. It's it's utter rank heresy. The point is not men versus women. The point is all mankind, every single man, woman, and child is in this state. The gospel is a message to rebels to repent from their sins and to believe upon Jesus Christ whom he sent. When Jesus is asked, what is it that I need to do to do the work of God? He says, believe upon the one whom he sent. That is himself, Jesus Christ. That is the only thing which we are commanded to do, to stand right before God. And it's only possible if God grant us the grace. Sinful men may tolerate a Christ who is meek and mild. This is, if you've ever seen a Jesus movie, just take note next time you watch it. What does he have going on? He's, he's from the 1970s. He has flowing hair and a robe probably made out of a hemp canvasy thing. And he's kind of wafty. And he, uh, there are some that are particularly bad. I like a few of the Jesus movies. Some of them get it right. But most of the time he looks kind of spacey. He has this kind of, glazed over, drug-induced, coma style. And I think they do that to kind of give this essence that Jesus was, you know, prophetic or walking by. But Jesus is not just a, a gentle, giant Jesus who is like this soft guy who encourages everyone he meets with. Back, if you grew up in the 90s or the early 2000s, you probably remember the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. And what I would say is that he would, in premeditation, fashion a a whip of cords and then intentionally go into the temple to drive them out. That's what Jesus would do. They invoked that common parlance to say, well, you know, how would Jesus respond here? And obviously, we need to be gracious. But if we leave people with just a gracious affirmation of their current state before God, and we never call them to repent, we are deceiving them. And so Jesus would intentionally name sin as sin, and he does so over and over again. He identifies their sin. He knew what was going to happen, and yet he proclaimed and called those two testimonies to the front and saw them come in wrath. People who are sinners, that is all men, all mankind, do not need to be concerned with a church or a gospel message which says, try Jesus. If Jesus is this optional thing, tangentially related to my life that may improve my family or give me a better career, I don't need to respond to that, right? If Jesus is just my ticket to a more stable, less dysfunctional family, then I don't really need Jesus. I have Oprah. I have Dr. Phil. They, they communicate in a language I know. I don't have to even read. I can just watch the TV, If you see Jesus as just a remedy for your financial problems, well, that's okay. I have tons of people who can do that, both secular and faith-based ones. Uh, Some people have told me that I'm like a 50-year-old in a 20-year-old's body, which I don't really agree with. But one of my favorite persons to listen to on the radio is Clark Howard. And that makes me like the oldest person I know. (laughs) Some of you don't know who Clark Howard is because you're young. That's good. 
You should start listening to him, though. But Jesus is not just a better Clark Howard. He's not just like Dave Ramsey on steroids. Jesus doesn't just help me get a career. We emphasize those things in this church because it's a sign of maturity for those who are walking in the counsel of God that if they are doing everything unto the Lord, then it should at least be good enough for men. If they're working with excellence, then they shouldn't be getting fired from every job. That's just normal, healthy Christian living. But that's not the message of the gospel. That's after the gospel. That's, that's a continuation of the gospel to those who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit as they've been justified. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is your only hope. There is no other option. There is no other thing that you can call upon. Christ, who is presented as an alternative to a painful or dysfunctional life, can be ignored. People will cope however they wish. The only way that you can present Jesus Christ as someone who has to be responded to is you have, if you identify him as the only remedy for the grave problem of sin, and they only know about sin if you declare it to be such. This is the great grace of the gospel which Jesus did and brought to us. A Christ who is Lord and sovereign, God Almighty in the flesh, come to save us and also to judge those who will not turn is our only hope, and he must be worshipped. He has to be responded to. So woe are we if we should not repent and believe in him who offers such a great reconciliation. Woe are we if we do not take hold of this one opportunity, this one man, which the apostles taught in the book of Acts, is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Woe are we should we not avail ourselves of the opportunity to draw near to God before him through Jesus Christ. Do not presume today upon the grace of God tomorrow. This is a common theme among the greatest preachers of all time where they tell their hearers, do not presume that you can repent tomorrow. Do not presume. God will not strive with you forever. In the book of Genesis, when God is seeing the evil that is at work in men's hearts, he says, I'm gonna number their days. I'm going to bring them to a number because I will not strive with a man forever. God who is constantly warring against the sin in their heart, calling them to repentance. The Bible teaches us to consider the end of our days. I think it's a regular, it's, it's a mark of a healthy psyche, a healthy spiritual life, a healthy mind to routinely consider your mortality. That is, why am I living right now? What will I do over the next 40 years? or 60 years. And then after you ask that question, then ask a more important question, what will I do if my life should end next year or next month? How am I living now? How does that reconcile with what I'm called to do before God? I, I don't think that is a mark of a mind that is focused on dark things. I think it is a mind that has been given the fear of the Lord. I routinely think about that. Not, I'm not boasting that I've obtained the fear of the Lord in any way other than what I've been given, but I, I think you should consider the end of my days. Am I truly known by Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ warns those, he says, that there will be many who come and say, did we not cast out demons by your, your spirit? Did we not heal those? And then he says, woe to you who are workers of iniquity. Depart from me because I never knew you. Do you know that you are known by Jesus Christ? You should consider the end of your days. Do not presume 
that you can repent tomorrow. Over and over again, the scripture shows that people who push off repentance to a later date only become harder and heart, harder and harder. Do not presume on tomorrow. And also we're encouraged to seek the Lord while he is near. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is near. The message of the gospel is one that is toward the sinner, calling him or her to repentance and identifying them as needing washed by Jesus Christ. Would you come and be washed by him? Finally, the third aspect of why this is a grace is that by Christ's testimony, we see that God is sovereign in who he chooses to redeem. We've already mentioned this in a little detail. He sent Elijah and Elisha to their assignments, not us. This is God's right, and it is good news, and this may seem counterintuitive to you. I want to help you with why this is actually a wonderful and precious doctrine, is because if my salvation is dependent on me, I am totally and utterly lost. Think about it for just a second. And if you need only any clarification, maybe consider your New Year's resolutions. I pledged to not turn on Netflix, and I have turned on Netflix. And I also pledged to not eat fast food occasionally, and I've eaten fast food twice. If, if my salvation should depend upon me, I'm utterly and hopelessly lost. If, however, it depends on God, it is wonderful. The scriptures show all men as hypocrites, unrighteous, full of poison. That's a nice word. I don't think that's going to get retweets. I don't think that's very popular. Murderers and dead in sin. We should not be perplexed that God only saves some. This is the objection that I mentioned earlier in the introduction. The common objection that many of you have heard concerning the, the message of the gospel is why does God only save some and not everyone? That's, the, that's a common objection, right? And I would say to you, if you are thinking about the gospel rightly, if you know sin to be sin, if you have any understanding given to you by God of what sin is, then your question should not be, why does God save only some and not others? But your question should be, why does God save any at all? Who are we that we should presume upon the grace of God that, that is, we have need of it or, or it's merited to us or we're good enough before God? When some people read the Old Testament scriptures, they hear about people who, because of their sin, are, are com they're commanded to die. It's commanded that the Israelites put them to death. And they say, well, you know, I'm not really bad enough to deserve death, right? Like, if I did that today, I shouldn't die for it. I should be given a chance to repent and, and mercy and, and all of that. But brothers and sisters, the scripture is clear. The wages, the result of sin is death. It's not that some should die, it's that all of us are supposed to die. If, if God should remove any aspect of his grace and bring his justice in the fierceness of what it would be, none of us would stand. You may think in your heart that you haven't really murdered, but Jesus showed that you have murdered. One barely need walk around town in our culture without being given the temptation to lust, let alone the lust that's already in your heart. Jesus shows that the law is not external. It's internal. How often have you warred against your brothers or slighted them in the sight of God? Brothers and sisters, God is not merely in heaven with a, an eye that is not looking at you. He is constantly here, constantly looking on the, the children of men, seeing if there would be a righteous heart in, 
any of them, and he identifies by his holy word that there is no one who is righteous, no one who has sought for God. And so we can only receive the grace of God. If the grace of God would be dependent upon my ability to turn, woe would be all of us, not just me. Woe would be all of us. So it is a grace that God is sovereign in his giving of the gospel. And I believe that it is this truth and this truth, this foundation alone, which can provide the only assurance, that is the only hope continuing as a Christian after you've now been brought into the family of God, washed by the blood of the Lamb and given the Holy Spirit and brought into a community which is seeking to pursue God together. After this has come about, what is your only assurance? Your only assurance is that your salvation is grounded in this reality of God's sovereign choice. Why is that? If my good effort brought me to God today or yesterday, then perhaps my moral failures and stumblings may push me away from him in the future. It logically follows if the grace of God is dependent upon my attempts to come before him and stand there justified as a result of my purity or my effort to clean myself up, then what should happen in the future? If my assurance is not rooted on the grace of God, the sovereign choice and election of God, then I will fear the rest of my days. Another way to put it is, if I earn his approval now, I might displease him tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, this is not the gospel. We do not earn our standing before God. And this plays out in every moment of every day. How do I know that God is truly favorably disposed towards me? And everything in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit should scream because the Lamb of God has died and taken away the sins of the world. And I have been included. I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And I'm in that number. As Christians, it is not the clarity or purity of your faith in Jesus Christ which saves you. This may sound a little perplexing to you, but think about it for a second. It is not the clarity or the purity of faith which saves you. It is not your ability to believe well. It is simply the object of your faith. It is not the strength of your faith, it is not the direction or intensity or zeal of your faith, but it is the one that your faith is set upon, that is your justification and assurance. My only be- hope before God is that the blood of Christ has been shed for me. I have no other hope as, as a human being before God. And so, as a Christian, as one who's been received into the family of God, I cannot add to the work of Christ. And the greatest assurance for the troubled heart the one whose conscience is constantly being encouraged by the Spirit to walk in holiness, the one who is beginning to show the fruit of the fear of the Lord, the only hope that you have is that not only can you not add to Christ's work, you can't take away from it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his wonderful rejection by the people of God. God, we pray that you would open our eyes. We, we cannot come before you. Your word has trapped all men under sin. You've identified that which is at work in all of our hearts. You said that none seek for God, that our mouths have become full of poison, that we're liars, that we run swiftly to shed blood, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We have transgressed your holy boundary 
And we receive, we are worthy to receive nothing but condemnation and wrath from you. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus' identification of the sins of the people, that he showed us what your gospel is like. We ask you, Lord, that you would not cause our hearts to be calloused. We know that you are able to save to the uttermost for those who would call upon you and draw near to you through Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty of this truth and that it would not just be an intellectual beholding, but that that it would become a heart beholding, that it would lead to true worship of you. And I pray that you would send your spirit to do what I cannot do to confirm, to seal, to unlock the heart. I pray that you would encourage those of us who have been justified before you, who have been washed, that you would allow us to continue on in the faith, not in assurance of how we did this week or yesterday or what I did earlier today, but rather that we would live and we would thrive knowing that we cannot add to nor subtract from the great work of Christ. I pray that you would confirm this in our hearts, that you would fill us with zeal, that we would become willing to be bold like Christ, to share the light to the nations. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.